Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Chewing the Gristle, a podcast of doom and destruction. I'm your host, Greg Cock, Gregory Cockery, or the Gristle Man, if you will. We're going to have extemporaneous conversations with a variety of very powerful musical friends. We're going to converse about life, liberty, and the pursuit of musical savagery. Is that wrong? I don't think so. So tune in. Brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of beautiful Louisville, Colorado. Fishman Transducers of the majestic and powerful community known as Andover, Massachusetts. Can you dig it? Today on Chewing the Gristle, we have a gentleman who is a brilliant musician, producer, and educator par excellence, and has taken the YouTubes by storm. You've seen his videos, you've loved him. Heck of a nice guy, ladies and gentlemen. Stay tuned for the mighty Rick Beato. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting edition of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Cockery. Uh, very excited to talk to this next gentleman, Rick Beato, ladies and gentlemen, uh, from beautiful Atlanta, Georgia. At least he lives in Atlanta, Georgia right now. And I have been watching his videos in amazement of just the uh, musicality and just the, the breadth of knowledge. It's just, you know, you... I got to admit, Rick, I'm sure you're the same way. It's, you know, as musicians, we're jaded because there's just so, there's just so much poop. You know what I mean? There is. <laughs> and so initially you're like, what's going on with this? And then, so when I started watching your videos, I was like, man, there is a lot of exceptional information on here. So, and of course your playing is great. And your ideas that you put on Instagram for, for soloing stuff, it's always really, really cool Cool stuff. And so I guess I'm curious as to, because I know, I know the internet thing has been something that all of us have been all of a sudden, oh, I guess I'll do this. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so kind of talk us through, you know, your journey. I mean, you, you went to music school, you got a master's in jazz performance. So what was, what was your initial vision for what you wanted to do and how has that changed leading up to, I mean, this is a long ass, obviously, question, but uh, leading to where you're at now. Give us give us kind of a, a little bit of a uh, excursion into that, uh, that track. Okay, first of all, Greg, I want to say that I'm a massively big fan of yours. You are absolutely one of my favorite guitar players. Oh. And I did meet you for 20 seconds at Starbucks. You probably don't remember this. I do remember that. I do I was getting my coffee, and then I'll turn to the side, and I know you're six foot 13. People know that, right? <laughs> that you're six foot 13 and a half. And I look over, and I was, oh, what's up, Greg? And, and, um, and that's all we said to each other. You say, hey, Rick, and that was it. I think we, I we, think we talked about coffee for a brief second. We did talk about coffee for a second. Which is a, it's a bonding beverage. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I, I, you know, I didn't know what, I, I always tell people I'm not a guitar player, really. I used to be a guitar player 30 years ago, uh, but I didn't, I, I, pra I didn't practice guitar from about 1991 was the last time I played a, a jazz gig until 2016 when I started my YouTube channel. And I'd play when I was, I was a music producer and I would play, you know, when I produced, I produced a lot of metal bands. That's what I okay. did for, for a living. Okay. And, and a lot of really heavy screaming kind of stuff. And I did other kind of bands, but a lot of metal and there was no guitar solos in any of the songs or anything. And, and if I played guitar on things, it'd be just 
ambient parts or whatever, right? So I hardly ever played. When I started my channel, I had one of my interns just had came in. It's like his name is Rhett Shull. He's got a YouTube channel. So Rhett came in one one day after he'd been interning for a few years. He said, "You should start a YouTube channel." I was like, "Why?" Oh, people will watch it. I was like, "Nobody's going to watch some white haired dude on 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 YouTube." I said, "What would I do?" He goes, "Do all your weird jazz stuff or talk about producing, talk about anything." And I said, "Well, I don't know how to use a camera. I don't own a camera." He goes, "I'll show you." So he came in the next day and he made my channel trailer. And then I started about a week later, I made my first video and I, I made 344 videos the first year. That's insane. So, That's yeah. insane in the membrane. So up, how did you end up in Atlanta? I mean, where is that? I'm from New York originally from upstate from Rochester. Okay. And um, I moved down here in uh, 94 at the end of 94 uh, I had been signed to a publishing deal with Polygram before that. Um, and I came down here to start a band and I did start a band in, uh, in 97, a band called billionaire. And we were together for about a year. We got a record deal. We made a disastrous record with a producer that, um, hardly showed up to the studio and I didn't know anything about production. It was just, it was literally a disaster put it out for a couple of weeks and then the label got bought out by universal and then we got dropped and that was it. So after that, that whole journey, but in the meantime, I started producing bands in 95, a buddy of mine's band called the tender idols called me to come over and help them with the song. I ended up producing their record and Dave Cobb, who's a great producer. He was in that band. He's a country, huge country producer, one of the biggest out there. Now he was a guitar player in the band and, um, and, you know, I just kind of started with that with a couple things, but by the time my band got signed after we'd made our record, we had about six months off. And so I started producing full time then. Uh-huh. And I taught myself, I just read magazines about how to engineer and just did it, figured it out. And that was that. That is it. You know, when you mentioned Rochester, you wouldn't by chance know the venerable Joe Romanola up there, do you? Guitar no. enthusiast, you do not. He, he's got a little uh, indie kind of a guitar label called Grooveyard Records. And okay. uh, I remember years ago, he came, I did a clinic. It was the House of Music up there in Rochester. That House of Guitars. Of, House of Guitars. Thank oh, you. yeah. And uh, nice. anyway, quite a character. He's just a guitar-loving uh, fool, I'm going to say. He's a great guy. And so he came out and he always liked this one record of mine. So years later, after it had kind of run its course, he's like, you mind if I licensed that record? But I was just curious. You mentioned Rochester. And I thought, I wonder if he knows Joe. You know, you know, Greg, there's a huge jazz guitar community in Rochester, always has been. So when I start, I start playing in the mid 70s and <clears throat> there's a guy a couple streets away from me. I, I was mowing his lawn and and I went in to get paid. I saw he had all these guitars in there and I, I and I was like, you play guitar? He said, yeah, I own a music store called T Rizzo Music and his name was name was Tom Rizzo. Well, Tom, <clears throat> excuse me, ended up selling the store. Um which is still there. He sold it to one of the teachers, isn't it? Joe Chapone, who still teaches there. But uh, Tom went and played with Doc Severinsen and the Tonight Show Band and did stuff like that. He's a great jazz guitar player. And I started taking lessons with him. And But there was, you know, five, six incredibly great jazz guitar players that all taught at this music store that all lived in Rochester. And so that was kind of a, you know, we all played jazz guitar in Rochester. 
So when you were growing up, did you did you listen to jazz or were you kind of like everyone like was was exposed to rock and roll, wanted to do that, and then all of a sudden became exposed yeah. to jazz kind of later? How how well was that? I played I was you know I have six siblings I love rock I mean that's what I grew up listening to you know the Beatles and the Stones and Zeppelin and you know whoever Pink Floyd I loved all classic rock bands that were current in. Uh, you know, when I was, when I was growing up and, but my dad loved jazz. He wasn't a musician, but he listened okay. to Joe Pass, Oscar Peterson. I mean, Miles, whatever. Right. My dad was a huge jazz listener and he liked really complex jazz. I don't know why, <laughs> but he did. He just, uh, he was really into that. So I was used to hearing jazz. So um, my first guitar lesson, I learned Donna Lee, the Charlie oh, Parker tune. That, that's he a hell of a first that. lesson. Yeah, so I learned it before I walked into my first lesson. There was a teacher that was in the waiting area. He said, You going in for your lesson? I say, I'm going to have a lesson with Tom. He goes, Oh, let me show you something. And then he taught me Donna Lee in about 15 minutes or so. <laughs> and he was like, I can't believe you you learned that. I was like, Okay. But <laughs> uh, I started on cello when I was a, like third grade and stuff. I played cello when I was a little kid. And then I went to bass. And my undergrad degree is in classical bass. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Awesome. So, you know, what's interesting is that I too am uh, have six siblings. Are you? Where are you in the uh, in the number seven? I, so I'm six out of seven, second youngest. How about you? Uh, I'm the youngest. I'm uh, the last. Well, my brother is the oldest, and then there he's 14 years older than I. And then there's okay. five girls, and then I came about five years after my last, my closest sibling. So I was kind of oops, and uh, so I ended up living uh, having to room with my brother. Because of course there were all of my other siblings were girls, so I was exposed to all of his records. So that's why I, I mean, by rights, I mean I was born in '66, so by rights I should have been, you know, uh, you know, a Gen X, either a metalloid or a or a or a punkist, as the case may be. But, <laughs> but I started. I mean, he list, I listened to Cream and Hendrix and Hendrix and Cream and Cream and Hendrix and Beatles and Stones, and then more Cream and Hendrix and so on and so forth. But it was funny because you mentioned. In third grade, I started up with the cello as well because it was the only. I really wanted to play guitar, but it was you know it was orchestra is offered in third grade, and I I remember getting right. getting that cello and trying to figure out Easy Rider by Jim <laughs> Hendrix, and uh, it did not go well. But um, yeah, it's funny. It's a fu it's a funny excursion. But Donna Lee is an interesting tune that brings up memories because I I went to a, a college in the in middle of Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point which also had a brewery, I might add. So that was kind of, that was really my course of study back in the day. Not that, I, <laughs> not that I'm recommending that to anybody, but um, I had to play Donna Lee for my junior recital amongst other songs. But I, I always reference this when, <laughs> when I'm giving lessons to folk and they talk about, well, what do you recommend for practicing? I go, well, whatever you do, because I practiced everything sitting down and in, you know, I learned the head and would practice it sitting down and all the other tunes. And then when I practiced with the guys I was going to use for the recital, we practiced several times sitting down. We, sh we show up for the thing. I'm standing up. I can't play shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, you have to practice standing up. You do. Yeah. It's actually true. If you're going to stand, you got to stand. That's and, right. But I just never forget it. It was, it was catastrophic. But luckily, what happens in Stevens Point stays in Stevens Point. So that was all well and good. So you end up going to school for um, for jazz at the New England Conservatory. So what was that like? What was that whole experience? It was it was fun. Um, I was uh, 
my guitar teacher there was Mick Goodrick. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I've heard and that. Miroslav Vitus was the uh, head of the bass department. Who oh, okay? Famous famous jazz bass player, head of the jazz department. And you know, it was a really there was you know this was in the mid eighties. And uh, I graduated with my master's in 86. So, um, you know, the jazz was really happening still at the time, um, right. way more than, than nowadays. And there were tons of jazz gigs. I played all the time. I played in Boston. I, um, I had different groups and things. I played with people like Vinnie Caliuta back then in the, ah. in the, in the mid eighties. And uh, I've known Vinnie for 35 years now, something like that. So is this, and, back, um, when you had, is this back when you had that epic beard? Because that beard... Was no, the epic the epic beard was about fifteen years ago, ten years, fifteen oh, okay. years ago, something like that. Everybody's like, "When did your hair go white?" I said, "When I had three kids." <laughs> you can relate, right? You have four, right? I do indeed. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that'll turn your hair white in a hurry, you know. It's yes, like, or go, or it'll just go. Right. It either goes white or just retreats, but I'm sorry I interrupted you. So we're in Boston. You're gigging around. Yeah. So I, so Mick Goodrick was, uh, was my guitar teacher there and he was um, really interesting guy to, to study with. Um, and he, he had some, um, I should say that my undergrad, my guitar teacher undergrad is a guy named Steve Brown and Steve taught me so much about He's an incredibly great jazz guitar player. I mean, that being said, I mean, I was a rock guitar player. I My first guitar solo was Hey Joe that I ever learned. You know, I, my mom, I always tell people, my younger brother, John, is a really good guitar player. He's four years younger than me. And we, when we start, we both started at the same time. We were about 13. He was nine. And I would play rhythm for him for five minutes while he'd solo on Hey Joe or something. And then he, then he put his guitar down and we get in a fight because he wouldn't play chords for me. So finally my mom was like, I'll play chords. My mom, and she's like, what are the chords? And I said, okay, E, G, C, you know, E, C, G, D, A. And my mom's like, okay. No. So my mom would literally play Greg for, for 15 minutes while I soloed. Ah, my mom her. would play rhythm guitar. Yeah. That's fantastic. You know, it's funny because Hey Joe is the first solo I learned as well. There you go. And I couldn't believe one. it. That was one of the most <clears throat> most exciting things, too, to learn that solo. And Absolutely. The, like the most fun thing to improvise. That's right. what's more fun than that. And your improvising, Greg, is absolutely phenomenal. Oh, you are. Man. I mean, you you're one of the few people too that that has humor in their in their playing as well you are um <laughs> you you i love the humor in your playing i love the variety you can play so many different styles so well you have incredible feel oh, well, uh, just and your ideas your flow of ideas are 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 ridiculous and to me that is just the the pinnacle of playing with people that can improvise. And um, I always tell people that that's, that's what you should always strive for is being able to do it off the cuff. Well, what, what's crazy. I, I thank you very much. I, that means a lot to me to hear you say that, but you know, it's so weird for me because being on, on this COVID hideaway, as I like to say it, you know, obviously horrible things are going on in the world. I don't want to make light of any of that, but all things being equal, everyone healthy in the home, all that other kind of stuff. If I just have to sit in the corner and play the guitar more because I can't travel, I, I'm really not having a bad time. You know? <laughs> I, I, I know I've I've actually played more guitar 
since last March or whatever than than I have. I mean, I I really have. It's it's that that's that's helped me tremendously. And uh, it's and just that's fun. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things to do still to this day is to play along with records. And now with YouTube, it's so great. You know, you just go, hey, I haven't heard that one record in a while. I can dig it up. No, I don't have to. I can go right on YouTube and play along with, you know, whatever record and figure out little licks or what. It's it's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> well, I like to build, uh, you know, I've done this for a couple of videos. I just did this Stairway to Heaven video. And yeah, I saw that. It was great. And I, I love to me building the backing tracks is as fun as playing over the stuff, but you know, building the backing track to stairway to heaven is so fun. I just love making covers like that, trying to get the sounds exactly the same. And, and, uh, that, that to me is really, really fun. It's yeah. one, of my, the, one of the most fun things I love to, I love to play, but I also love studio stuff and I love engineering and mixing and, that's one thing I've regretted not not getting into is just because there's obviously when you know that stuff, you have freedom because then you never have to be, yeah, it doesn't quite sound right because then it's on you. It's like, well, if you don't like it, that's your own damn fault. So, it, but it's always been one of those things for me. I've used the excuse of everybody that I know that has studios is always obsessing about the next piece of gear they need to get. Or I need to get this <laughs> microphone or this, this thing's not working over here. Damn it. You know, the, the now everything's not compatible because I upgraded the, pro, you know, the software on this. And uh, I was like, I just don't want to do any of that. But so the trade-off is, is that, you know, your reliance on other people to do, <laughs> to do all that stuff. So I'm curious, you know, you could do so many things. you got these videos coming out. You pr obviously prepare a lot for these videos. I mean, what's a day look like for you that you're, you know, obviously you must work at this, six days a week. Uh, what, what does a typical day look like for you when you're conceiving and then putting all these things together? So I usually get up, uh, I get up about six in the morning and now, you know, with my three kids, uh, at home, <clears throat> I, you know, make breakfast, my wife and I, she goes to work at uh, seven 30 or so. And then, uh, I get my kids going, they're on their zoom classes by, by eight. And right. then, um, and then I get down and I, and I I start working usually around nine thirty or so and or a lot of times I'll sit out in the backyard my backyard and I'll drink coffee and talk to my buddies and try to come up with an idea for a video and it usually takes me about a day to make a video at the most um, okay. so uh, and I'll work until I mean I work twelve hours a day seven days a week pretty much I got you yeah. I've done it for for four years now um, yeah it's it's pretty time consuming. But obviously, it's it's worthwhile. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's fun working out. Yeah, it's fun. And now that I do, and I tr I try to post on Instagram every day too, and and uh, that that's been really fun because I don't really play guitar very much on my YouTube channel because I do videos on so many different things. Occasionally, sure. I play guitar, but on Instagram is kind of my place where I can goof around on the guitar, and which I spend five minutes every day doing that. Um, well, they're awesome. I really enjoy well, them. Thank you. You know, I, I hold my guitar in these videos. I don't normally hold my guitar up like that. I only hold it like that for Instagram so the sure. guitar neck doesn't get cut off. But I can't really play. I can't do vibrato properly or anything. If you ever see me, if I'm playing a solo on my YouTube channel, like Stairway to Heaven, I hold the guitar normally because uh, you because you can't really play vibrato. I can't play. You just can't have any feel playing like this. It's weird. Right. But But I don't like the guitar getting cut off. And when people are watching... 
I want them to be able to see without, without saying, oh, wait, is he at the first fret? Well, the neck is getting cut off there or whatever, you know? So, um, and that kind of screws up my playing because I play like that, you know, for a few minutes every day. Then I go to play and it's like, wait a minute, this is weird here. And then my hands and my right hands in a different spot. It's like, oh, forget it. You, so. you know, I have, I have noticed that, that you love the Gibsons. You're a Gibsonsman. In various, <laughs> in various different iterations. So have you, has that always been the case for you? I own four tellies. Okay. I have an Esquire. I have a custom Strat that I had built. Um, I have two PRSs. Now I play, you know, I used to be a Fender. Well, I don't know. I've always played Fender and Gibson for the most right. part. But, but I love, I have six Les Pauls. Um, I have a, a Les Paul special that I love to play. Yep. But I love Gibsons, you know. Um, what is it about a Les Paul? I just, even though that's never been my main guitar, I just adore them. I like to look at them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It, you pick it up. And, I'm, for years when I was going out to Wildwood, I had a, um, I bought a uh, Greg Martin uh, Collector's Choice number 15, 58 Les Paul. And for a good year and a half, I didn't even bring it home. I just kept it out there, even though I was only going out there four days a month. But I would bring that guitar and I would just, you know, I'd have it in my hotel room. And it was, I used to refer to it as my uh, Rocky Mountain mistress. And I'd go out and I would just wake up in the morning and just see it from across the room and just like, God, that is the most glorious. What is it about Les Paul? It's like we've been transfixed by some spell. <laughs> they are really, I mean, I think that they're beautiful guitars. They they look great. They uh, To me, they play great. It's funny. When I would, as a, as a, you know, music producer, I ended up using Fenders so much for sure. overdub parts for a lot of the, I use tellies almost so much because, because a lot of the bands I would play would use humbucker bass guitars, a lot of, uh, you know, seven uh -huh. strings and things like that. And, and, uh, or low tuned guitars. So they'd always use the pointy headstock guitars. And, um, but then to do any type of extra production stuff, I would end up using, things like tell I'd use stuff that really would in, intonate well you'd have to worry about the tuning or you could get different more ethereal sounds so I and I find I find myself I used to play fenders especially tellies all the time yep and I would just play my Gibson but when it comes to soloing I love playing on my Gibson because the neck is just you know for my hands I learned my first electric was a Les Paul okay and so you know I've always kind of played Les Pauls so <laughs> but, but my favorite guitar is my is my special, my double cutaway. This one here because yeah, um, yeah. I love this. I love that it's got um, just with the matte finish. I guess you would call. What do you call it? Matte finish. I call it. Yeah, matte. they call them uh, uh, like VOS. I guess they call. Yeah. Them, right? yeah, yeah, and and the thing that you know because the body and the neck. I can I I like to play up here on the low E string a lot, and this is one of the few guitars that and SG that you can actually play up there and you, your thumb, you know, you, you, the neck just hits the body right there. So it's easy. You can play anywhere. Just so you know, when I'm, when I'm looking over this way, I'm actually looking at you, my camera's over Oh, here. got it. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I, you know, I, I recently did some P90s with, um, uh, with Fishman because I've been working with them on those floats yep. pickups and, and boy, I'll tell you what, there's nothing like P90s. And I think we really nailed it. So it's going to be fun for them to come out. I'm actually going to have them in a in another version of my Reverend guitar, but it'll be more uh, Gibson scale, you know, um, set neck, 
um, ebony fingerboard, so on and so forth. But man, P90s, they, love they are P90s. unique. They're my favorite. They're a unique beast. And when they sound good, man, they sound really good. Yeah. Yeah. I just love, uh, to me, single note playing <clears throat> with P90s always sound, I, I just, uh, there's a sweetness to it that I, that I really like, um, uh, that I, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I, I really prefer it. I kind of remind, I've always mentioned this record and, uh, but that, that Lou Reed rock and roll animal record, <laughs> the tone on that with old Steve Hunter, I think they were both playing juniors on that. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, I think that right. also reawakened my, my lust for the, uh, for the phaser. I've been reliving, <laughs> reliving my phaser fantasies, but uh, yeah, P90s sound great. You load them up. And I remember a, a buddy of mine years ago, his main rig was he would use a junior into an old uh, blonde basement and he would collect blonde basements and just crank it up and put that thing through it. It was the most glorious tone. It's kind of the same thing with, <clears throat> with Esquire's, you know, single yeah. pickup guitar for some reason, you know, it seems like uh, that one pickup is getting all the magnetic mojo and it just, they just, belch forth beauty and savagery at the same time. Yeah, I love my Esquire. I love it. It sounds killer. And, and uh, I don't know what the three positions do on it, Greg. I never thought about asking, but uh, what, what do they do? What, what, what do those three things do with one pickup? Well, it, it depends. Sometimes what they do, like on, on more of the modern versions. And I think it's a variation of what they did back in the day is that um, in the normal bridge position, I think it's a uh, bridge and they bypass the tone control. Okay. And then in the middle position, it's bridge with the tone control. And then when it's where, what usually would be the neck pickup, it's like some predetermined diminishment of some kind of a buffer to give it kind of a bass pickup or like tone rolled off sound, like a preset tone roll off. And, um, which is actually kind of cool. What they did later is they did something, um, uh, where they they turned into something that was a little more kind of squawky, almost kind of a it sounded a little bit out of phase, but it was more usable because obviously people didn't really use that and they would just not, you know, they would just not go there. But then in later wirings, they changed it so that when you were in that usual neck position, that it was just uh, something where they dialed in this capacitor to give you this kind of squawky little, you know, kind of cocked wah type of a sound, which is kind of cool. But, you know, I... I uh, um... I've never made a video on this, but I, I don't usually put my volume control up to up all the way. I do sometimes, but there's so many times I'll have my volume on, on my guitar on three or something or one or yeah. six or whatever. And I know that you play with all different sets. You're, you're a master of tones out of the guitar, whether it's pinch harmonics or any, all these different things that you do. Um, just getting the tones, you know, finding them. And that's one thing to me that a lot of guitar players don't do very much is they don't really use their tone and, and pick up and their, and their volume knobs. Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. There are definitely so many uh, different hues just to be found on the guitar itself with where you put the volume. Um, I remember somebody not too long ago was dis discussing this online and just said, you know, does anyone play with their volume on anything else other than full? Meaning they use pedals and everything to get all those different hues. And I suppose that's, that's one way you're looking at it, but I, I'm always messing with the volume control and, um, and there's, there's all kinds of different things. You know, I, I do like using an aspect of, you know, the clean tone on an amp 
and, you know, turning the volume down and getting a really clean sound, turn it up so it's just starting to break up a little bit. Uh, but sometimes I just will set everything, all the gain on my amp all up and then just use the volume and turn it down and it gets clean-ish. And then you got all the hues under the rainbow. So, yeah, I I agree. There's there's just so much to be had just on board the guitar that you can... Um, that you can mess with. And that's why I think I, I love the telly template more than anything. Cause it's just such a cool blank canvas for just doing everything with your hands. You know, and it's yeah. not kind of like, it's not kind of a, a hard guy thing. All I need is a cord and a telecaster. <laughs> it's just, I like easy. You know what I mean? It's easy. Yeah. There's three sounds. They're all great. <laughs> that's true. And then you've got these ways of just kind of tweaking the sound a little bit. And, you know, if you want to bend the neck, you can do it. If I always, you know, I I say this quote all the time, but I love to say that, you know, after in a post-apocalyptic world, there will be cockroaches and telecasters. The telecasters will be in tune. And that's pretty right (laughs) for the cockroaches to enjoy. So (laughs) musical cockroaches, you know, it's coming. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Oh, Lord have mercy. Well, let's talk about a little bit about... Um, I, I think it's interesting. I get asked this question a lot. I'm sure you get asked it a lot. Um, is is people are debating whether it's good or bad to have this quantity of knowledge available uh, about music so readily accessible to everybody online? Not not from a really a financial point of view. I, I mean, there are those that think about it from that point of view, but just. They like there's almost a diminishment of the majesty now that it's all available. I don't take that view at all. I think this is the golden age to learn music. And the idea is to make music that is pleasing (laughs) to yourself and others. And now, I mean, I'm sure you can totally relate. Remember back reading Guitar Player magazine and you'd read, you know, say you're reading up on Albert Lee. And he mentions guys like Hank Garland and Jimmy Bryant or, you know, even Jerry Reed or whatever the case may be. And if you went down to your local record store, they're not going to have any of that stuff. And unless you were really proactive with, you know, sending away for records or going to conventions and getting that stuff... It was like, oh, one day I'll, you know, unless somebody took pity upon you at one point, gave you a mixtape with some of this stuff on it. But nowadays you can literally access any of this stuff. Uh, Either there's uploaded audio or there's video of these people playing. There's people disseminating this stuff for you. I think this is absolutely the golden era of learning music. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, when it was the golden era, apparently of the record industry, I wasn't making squat and and now I've got all these different opportunities to play the music I want to do, pretty much say whatever I want to say, you know, within reason. But I get to express myself musically in a way that I never could before and get compensated for. So as far as I'm concerned, it's like I'm okay with everything that's going on with the internet. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh it's interesting. I think a lot of, about this that not only can you learn anything, people show you exactly where everything's played. You can, or you can watch videos of the actual players. You can find Jimi Hendrix. I mean, where right. could you ever have seen Jimi Hendrix play 
or what or West Montgomery. I didn't right. even know there were any videos of West at all. Exactly. You know, and every guitar player you can think of, every musician you can think of, there are tons and tons of countless videos of them playing. George Benson is a person that I'm a massive George Benson fan. And he really, to me, his guitar playing was not really represented on record as much as now you can watch him play live gigs and things like that, that mind boggling, mind boggling. And, and, um, uh, but the other side of it is that, yeah, you can learn all this stuff exactly as people played it, but I find that that things like improvisation, um, the the level of of um, that not as many people improvise now. They're they're uh, they compared to when you and I were growing up because. You know, you learn to play blues, you learn to play rock. Some people learn to play jazz, but it was all pretty much improvising back. You know, if you learned in the 70s, that's people improvised on records. There wasn't, you could have a, you know, Peter Frampton, there's 10 solos and do you feel like we do? You know, there's, uh, you know, Stairway to Heaven solo is a minute long. Right. You know, when I started doing my solo and I was like, this thing goes, I was talking to Phil X who did the Eddie Van Halen thing right. and Eric Johnson too. In the video, I was talking to Eric, we all were saying, man, that solo's long. Right. You know, a minute long solo or David Gilmore at the end of, you know, uh, comfortably numb between this, all the solos in that song. That's the, it's that's three crazy. minutes of the song or guitar solos, you know? And, and uh, it's, you know, being able to improvise is uh, is still something that that I uh, you can learn things exactly like people play them, but it doesn't necessarily make you a great improviser. That um, that's something that you need to just kind of figure out on your own or something. I don't know. What Absolutely. do you think about that? Well, I agree with you. I mean, <clears throat> I always just say that I was lucky in the fact that you know I would book. You know, after very early on, I realized I was going to have to have my own band because no one uh, was going to do it the way I wanted to do it. I mean, I'm I'm a control freak to a point, but I I wanted to be able to have my own band. And so I started playing out in the area and we did pretty well. You know, people would come out to the band, we'd make money. So um, I would add things to the set list. Uh, that I wanted to work on. Like, I'm not so good at those altered dominant chords. Or I would just say, you know, those Steely Dan chords. And so I would put a, I'd put a couple of those tunes in the set so I could practice that stuff in the moment, you know? Uh, and I would constantly be adding new things all the time that I wanted to work on. Um, you know, I wanted to, you know, I had goals as a musician and I would, and I would get my 10,000 hours by just gigging and applying this stuff. And I always say there's, there's always that, that awkward gestational period between, you know, the, the goal where it's just another vocabulary word as you're telling a story versus it's, I'm going to use that word now. <laughs> you know, That's I true. Use the word like recalcitrant. I learned the word recalcitrant and by God, I'm going to use it. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, you're spoiled by doing that because there were places to play all the time and you could make money and, and you'd play. I mean, you didn't make a lot of money, but you, you know, you could gig out and play and, and so there was the ability to practice in that regard, to, to get rid of that gestational period, to build up the actual vocabulary of stuff that makes sense. Um, yeah, and it's not the same unless you play with like a, a looper in, in the house. But I always, you know, of course, as you well know, 
you know, playing at home, even rehearsing at home is different from being in front of people. That's right. Getting that vibe going, knowing what works and what doesn't work and feeding off that energy. And that's something that can't be uh, replicated. So that's 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 spot on. I mean, as far as you can learn all this stuff, but unless you have the ability to take it to that next level through this process where there's really no substitute other than perhaps down the line when AI comes, I guess. <laughs> well, I think another thing too, Greg, is that when you're out playing gigs and you're playing with human, like a, a real drummer that's actually not playing to a click or not right. is not a click track, and that you have to develop your sense of time with them and actually playing in an ensemble. That, there's no nothing better than that. And that's right. the thing that, you know, a lot of young players don't have the opportunities to do. They play with click tracks. They play with program beats and it's all, it's just playing with a metronome essentially. But if you right. play with a drummer that, you know, really can lay it down, it helps your playing more than anything. You know, it's, you know, interacting with people where the time is moving, where it's fluid. Exactly. Is it makes you so much of a better player. I think makes you a better listener too. I agree. And, and, and time does move by God. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's interesting. We always like to track with a click track, but man, you feel it moving and, but it always comes, you know, always comes back. You know what I mean? But that's, you know, to your point, I mean, I mean, think about the, all the different songs, great rock songs that are, weren't, weren't done to a click track and they totally speed up. <laughs> you know, and- I, I did a thing where I was uh, uh, um, back in black. It starts, I think at 91 in the first verse, first chorus is at 93. Second, second verse is, is, is 92. Second chorus is 94. Then it slows a little bit down. I mean, I there's a thing called Live BPM, a great app for the phone that you just hold it up there. And you can see the tempo changing all the time with it. And I've mapped out songs. And once people people started, uh, I mean, by 2000, people were playing with a click to, in Pro Tools. And you had very little movement in songs. Typically, in the, you know, the, the, whether it was Hendrix or Zeppelin or whoever, Songs would speed up in the chorus usually, and then lay back in the verse. Exactly, and and then um, then you stopped having that. And to me, that that uh, makes music, um, you know, music then got more compressed. So you so you have a lack of dynamics and a lack of tempo fluctuation. And then that there's that's pretty much where most of the music happens. You know, it's like you know, a person's phrasing is really where they don't play notes, you know, where the rests are. That's kind right. of where, you know, and their rhythmic sense is kind of based on that. Motifs are really happen, are punctuated by spaces, you know? And, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, very few people, if you listen to Black Dog, uh, Bonham's counting with his, clicking his sticks together. You always hear that yeah. last, stick click before they you know that that andy johns is unmuting the the thing and you always hear that one stick click but you know he's going crash click 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 right in between that's what people used to do right so um you know i was thinking about that is you know as you've you know done these videos where you're disseminating artists maybe giving them a closer look than perhaps you'd done before uh, just as far as how the songs come together, the production and so on and so forth. Was there anybody that upon deeper investigation, you were like, holy shit, these guys were really great. And uh, and conversely, like, oh my God, I, that's really, I'm amazed that the the whole produced such a great thing because 
by its parts, it's kind of a hot mess, even though that's well, it's, it's, it's interesting because some recordings are. Um, I did a breakdown of Ramble On and uh, the perfect case there that Bonham's do, is doing the click track. The, the t -t 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 is just him hitting on his drum stool or something. Ah, you're right. right. The beat, and then uh, that's the that's the click track for the song. I mean, there is no click track on any of these old songs that I that I pull up the things that there is no click track to them, right? There's somebody's always keeping a beat. There's never, never a click. Um, those things, it really depends. Um, the, the, you'll, you'll hear weird. I, you know, in, in the long run, the songs, they all sound great when you put the tracks in together, but sometimes you think, boy, that's a weird sound. If you were to take the guitar sounds on, on more than a feeling, for example, and you listen to the, clean electrics it's all just you know it's all 1k or so even the even the guitars in the chorus tom schultz boston guitar sounds are like right. a half cocked was what they sound like exactly. you know yeah it's all mids um but when you put it in the bass is massively big on the on that first boston record all the songs huge bass and tom schultz is playing everything on there and um you know but you you know you solo the things you're like god that's weird that sounds weird by itself you know and and but mostly, or, or, you know, Brian May's guitar on Bohemian Rhapsody. Now, I didn't do a video on that, but I have all these Queen tracks and everything. And some of them are, sound really strange with the bleed that you hear. And, um, but then you just put the whole everything together. It sounds amazing. Right. It's so, crazy. Yeah. They did on Bohemian Rhapsody when the, when the track gets really full near the end, there's a second, there's just a, a track of snare that comes in where they're just at, because they didn't have samples or anything. And just right. to get the snare to come out, they just added a snare track, extra snare track, played right along with it, you know? Ah, very interesting. Yeah. So you, you see stuff like that that's really, really interesting. You know, when you mentioned that the first Boston record, I remember, <laughs> I remember I got it for Christmas when I was like in fifth grade. And I remember getting that record, putting it on my phonograph and eating rock candy and playing with my You Drive It. <laughs> <laughs> well, when that, when that came out, you know, I was, it was interesting because I didn't know anything about engineering or, or music production. So I was in, I came out in 76 or, uh, and I think 76, 76. Yeah. And um, I was in eighth grade or so and, and, but you knew that it sounded different than other records. You never heard guitars that were that right. distorted. They had the sustain like that and just all the, the feedback and the pick squeals and every pick slides oh, yeah. and everything. You know, I was like, whoa, what is that? You know, you just you recognize those things or, or Zeppelin, you would recognize that the records didn't sound like anyone else. You know, all these exactly. unique guitar sounds, drum sounds, everything. It sounded huge. Yes. Or Hendrix would have the weirdest panning stuff and, you put that on the headphones or Pink Floyd and you think, oh, that's amazing. What is that? You know, and uh, th that to me, that's really always I've always been interested in that as well. And and uh, uh, I don't even know what we were talking about there, but I just. That's all right. It's all good. Uh, I, you know, it does make me think that, that and I know you can relate to this as far as another thing that people these days who are younger probably can't appreciate, because I think the paradigm has changed from. When those bands that we looked up to back in the day released a record, that was the studio version. But we right. knew the live version was going to be a whole other thing. Because, you know, for one thing, they weren't going to try to replicate all the parts. So whatever they were going to do was going to be something different. And they were going to be improvising. 
And so there was always the discussion, I re- I prefer the live version, you know, and that kind of stuff. Whereas it seems like more today, it's like the artists are trying to replicate through additional ancillary tracks that might be piped oh. through playing along with to try to sound exactly like the damn record. And even a lot of the, you know, the legacy bands, it's almost as if they are trapped into not being able to reinterpret their own songs because if they get too wild, the average listener's like, wait a minute. You know what I mean? That that seems to be a disappointing aspect of modern musical life. <laughs> you know, you know, Greg, I well, I interviewed Peter Frampton a couple of years ago and I and I asked him, you know, because some of the things, the lines on my face was a song that that on the record it came out on, um, uh, was it Frampton's Camel? I think um, it, yeah, it's yeah. an acoustic song, and then and and on the live record, it's it has nothing. The the guitar part's totally different. And he said, and I asked him about that. He said, oh, well, we had just made our own electric versions of them, totally different parts, right? You know, kind of the same guitar part, but but executed completely differently. It was an electric version that was really nothing like the studio version. And that, to your point, that was a big thing. Yeah, and I remember those because my, my sister had, um, she had that first Frampton record where he's got the Les Paul in the front with a black background where he's just kind of singing. And then the live record came out and the live record destroyed any of his studio stuff. It yes. was like there was, there was no comparison. Right. There yeah, some- everything, his singing, his guitar playing, everything was way better than the studio stuff. It's, and and it's- the drums were glorious. Oh, it's- yeah. I mean, that's a really incredible sounding record. Um uh, it's really well done. The drums sound modern on it. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, in the middle of the seventies, they didn't use, they use nice open sounds because right. they were influenced by, you know, he had worked with Glenn, with uh, Glenn Johns, Peter Frampton did, and he loved the Zeppelin drum tones and things like right. that. They're all natural, which in the long run, you know, I always say that, you know, Don Henley, the, the, the Eagles, you listen to his sounds. It sounds like he hit, hitting the drums with a wet sock. Right. There, you know, and, and, uh, and the, to me, the, the, all the natural tones of Zeppelin never got dated. Sound. Right, exactly, exactly. And Ginger Baker was another one. Remember, yeah, I don't know exactly. if he, he did a record with Public Image Limited in the 80s. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Of that, course. Uh, that, yeah. That's one of my favorites. Because, again, do your, it's just natural drum sounds. with, And then Steve Ives playing guitar, that record is fantastic. Killer Ginger record. was one of those guys. And, of course, he's taken a lot of heat because his mouth was so caustic. But... Um, Tell you what, when it came to tones, he was, you know, he was the first to do a lot of that stuff. And you know, I'm sure Bonham would be the first to say it, that he got a lot of stuff from Ginger. But he was another guy. You know, you listen to those drum sounds and they still sound awesome. Those guys are all tuned like jazz drummers, the high tom tunings, like bebop drummers would play back then, you know, or big band drummers. And um, the drums would have so much tone to them because of that. They'd have real, you know, higher, a lot higher pitches and and having the bottom heads on them made them be, they were so resonant and they sounded great in the room. Whereas the dead toms with no bottoms on them, you know, their, the room sound was not important. They wanted all close mic sounds. That's one of the reasons that, that um, Don Henley didn't want to work with Glenn Johns. He's like, he wanted to have, well, I don't like the who drum sounds. Like, what are you talking about? The who, Keith Moon had amazing drum sounds. Indeed. You wish your drum sounded like that, Don, no offense. Right. <laughs> things worked all right for Don. Things they did. They did, right uh, more, Don but, did well. But but the, all things being equal, I agree with you. Yeah, it's um, you know it's amazing. I I still find myself um, I'm just a total Zep head, and um, 
And it's interesting because I remember there was a there was a period where I started playing and and um, I didn't like them as much because I I felt that you know, especially at that point Zep was still you know I mean I think In Through the Outdoor had just come out uh, and I like I loved that record and uh, but then shortly thereafter I got more immersed in kind of the blues stuff and maybe started to open my ears to some jazz stuff and and Zeppelin was just too kind of mainstream and Jimmy was a little too sloppy or whatever the case may be. So I kind of veered away for a while uh, and then came back, of course, as we all come back to the power of the Zep. But I, I find that, you know, it's just hard to overstate just how cool it was that they understood the, um, you know, the crux of what made that old blue stuff real and the old roots rock and then took these other elements and popped it in there. And that's why I always say, you know, um, you know, in, in, in the difference between them and like more of the metal bands of the eighties is that there was, you know, the bands of the sixties, they, they were searching for something other than just musical. There was like this mystical thing. Music was more of like a, a yes. search, uh, across the board for all things mystical and magical. And uh, and there was just this element of, you know, as I said, it was, it was kind of scary, to be honest with you. And, of course, there, when there was the scuttlebutt of, you know, you know Robert, jo- uh, Robert Johnson selling his soul at the crossroads and Jimmy Page apparently is into the dark arts. You're like, maybe there's something to this. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, and so as years went on, I mean, I, I just Zeppelin, even though I listen to these bootlegs to this day, because, of course, they're uploading them into YouTube all the time. And I'll listen to things from 77 and man, you, one moment you will hear something that's so ghastly, you're embarrassed for them. And then the very next minute you'll be like, no, this could never happen again, ever. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Exactly. And the whole idea of Bonham, it's like, you know, once he left, I mean, they, they couldn't get anybody to replace him. No. I mean, no one felt music the way that he did and no one matched. I mean, Jimmy Page really, you know, I, I felt bad for him because he was so used to being able to just count on that happening behind him that he could do whatever he wanted in the dragon suit, resplendent, smacked out with a cigarette. You know, be like, I'm the coolest guy in the world because this guy behind me is making me so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's it's just one of those things. And, and capturing that, that bottom sound, you get a lot of guys that, Oh, I'm a bit really into Bonham, but they don't get the fact that, well, yeah, but you had to have listened to the R&B stuff and, and Bernard Purdy and, and Ginger Baker. And then the guys before that, Art Blakey, all that kind of stuff is a part of why he sounds the way that he does. And uh, it's just it's just one of those things where I listen to those guys. Like I listened to ben, the, the 1980 tour. I listened to that quite a bit. They toured Europe in 1980 and there's some dodgy stuff on there. But for the most part, there's these glorious segments where – you know, Bonham is just like, God, it's just, it's just, um, it's oh, yeah. like a, a force of nature. <laughs> I mean, no, in my no, cracker, do you agree? <laughs> uh, no, I, no, I t- totally, it's, it's, uh, um, you know, that's never been any, anybody, you know, that, that was when Bonham died, that was, uh, you know, never could be replaced. Yes. Same with Keith Moon. You know, oh, Absolutely. Thing. It was uh, both those bands losing their drummers that were so uh, unique. The both their styles were so unique for the ba- and and such a big part of the band sound. I mean, there's other bands that lost drummers that you know they you could know, carry on with someone. They could carry on with someone, but you know, not not in these. You know, not that they're. I mean, who played like Keith Moon? He had the weirdest. He did. 
how could he play so busy yet it worked with the songs? I, I can I still can't figure it out. And as much as he got crap for being kind of past his prime at 31 years old, that's always what kills me. Oh, he was past his prime. But uh, his playing on Who Are You is awesome. The yeah. tones are great. The parts are cool. You know, apparently I had to do it several times. But, hey, you know, it's rock and roll. What are you going to do? Well, that's what's fun about the music thing. It never gets it never gets boring talking about this stuff. And I think that's you know, that's one of the fun things about about you know the YouTube situation is that you can share your love for this stuff and really get into the minutiae. And there's people that are fascinated by it because it never gets old. It's 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 just well, there's a lot of stuff, you know, the the um for me being 58. Um, I have a lot of, you know, I've lived a long life to be able to talk about a lot of different things on my channel, as opposed to being, if I was 30 years old and you have half the experiences that you have with music, um, it's, you know, the, um, I, I just find so many, there's just so many things to talk about and and so many things that I think are, are interesting and, getting to meet people like you. And, and uh, this is really, you know, great. I, it's, it's, it's funny. Cause I always watch you, you know, I'll, I'll watch you play, you know, I'll watch you on Instagram and stuff. And I was like, man, if I live near Greg, we'd be hanging out. I know we would <laughs> totally hang out and geek out and listen to music. And then, then I was thinking, and you are the funniest person when, when you, st- I kind of miss it that you're not out touring. Cause when you would do your ad advertisements for your gigs, when you'd be over in Europe, <laughs> I, I will go back and watch those things. Cause those are amazing. Those are, you know, I'd watch them 20 times and, <laughs> and you just, just riffing, just talking about, you got a gig coming up here and, and, uh, I would never begin to try and imitate you either. Like that. I, 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 I love that. Well, you know, I appreciate that because you know what? I just, uh, without a sense of humor, would the music industry even be possible to keep your sanity? I'm thinking no, because no. there's just, <laughs> so I just, uh, I find myself having to laugh off a, a lot of stuff. So, I, well, you know what? Your blooper things on, on Wildwood on that too are amazing. <laughs> I think that's so cool that they did those because those are hysterically funny. Oh, well, thank you. And those, those are the clean ones. i can imagine i can imagine well it's been a lot of fun you know that's one of those things you know like i would have never thought of uh doing this internet you know the the wildwood thing just totally was happenstance at the time you know the the majority of my stuff that i did was um I did a bunch of stuff for Fender. I would do clinics for them. I'd do like, uh, sometimes they would just send the band on tour and we'd do like sanctioned shows, Fender events and all this kind of stuff. And I was never an employee of Fender. I just, you know, I had built up relationships with different Fender people all over the world. So I would fill up my calendar with a bunch of stuff to make sure I could pay the mortgage. And then I would pepper it around with uh, a bunch of stuff w- where it was band oriented. So my band would tour in Europe and we'd put Fender stuff around it. And then, you know, I had the Hal Leonard thing where I did a bunch of books for them and did some clinics for them and whatnot. So it was a kind of a combination of all those things. And the Fender thing was kind of running its course. They, you know, the, the company got sold and a lot of people that I dealt with were kind of getting let go or one thing or another. And I got called out of the blue 
to go to Colorado because um, I had done a full band clinic uh, at Wildwood. Wildwood itself, the original store, it, the 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 shop part of it's pretty small, but the building there's all these little entryways where they've got thousands of guitars in this in this place. But we didn't shoot the videos there, nor did we do this this first clinic. They would rent out this other facility. And I did a full band thing there with, uh, at the time, it was Roscoe back on bass and Tommy Breckline on drums. And we would do this trio thing. We came and we played. And Steve, the owner of Wildwood, had us over for dinner. And it was very pleasant and had a great time. And then a couple of years later, the Fender rep out there called me up and says, hey, you remember that store in Colorado, Wildwood? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, he's got this, this idea. You know, he's kind of been on the forefront of using the internet to sell guitars and putting all the minutia of all the different pictures and the weights and the values of the pickups or whatever, you know, all this different material that people want to know when they're really super interested in the high-end guitar. He goes, but he wants someone to play them uh, on these videos. So his idea is to have people from different companies come there and do it. He goes, so you're the Fender guy where he wants to bring you out for a couple of days to shoot some videos of, cause he would buy all of these, you know, specially kind of Wildwood branded version of Fender custom shop guitars, Wildwood tens and all this kind of stuff. So I remember I went out there and um, I showed up to do the first video and all I had on the teleprompter was the name of the guitar, the serial number and the weight. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, listen, I, I just want you to kind of play a little bit on each pickup selection, play clean, and then maybe a little dirty, do some different styles, and then maybe give some off-the-cuff impressions of the guitar. I'm like, okay, cool. So camera goes on, I start playing, I do some talking, play a little bit more, da 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 da, -da get done. And he stands up and he comes across the room, he goes, can I hire you to do this? I go, you mean kind of like a job? And he's like... <laughs> He's like, yeah, I will fly you out here every month to do these videos. And now you got to remember at this point, having never had a uh, retainer from Fender, um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking the largest guitar manufacturer in the world can't give me a retainer. But this guy in Colorado's ready to give me a guarantee every month to come out and play their guitars for them. I'm thinking, let's do it. So yeah. I started going out there. I think initially it was three days a week. And then it became apparent that, you know, I started playing on Les Pauls and stuff. And he's like, well, you play totally different on Les Paul. I'm like, yeah, well, I played 335s for years and yada, yada, yada. And he goes, well, I could sure use you a lot more if you'd play some of these other guitars. So the Fender guys really weren't using me. They didn't have a problem with me doing it. So I ended up doing these videos. And I always say to folks that, you know, of all the different things over the years, you know, um, not that they all haven't been great and I'm grateful for them and the different record deals and columns and magazines and all this kind of stuff. It all pales in comparison to the videos that I did for Wildwood because people are basically, they can go anywhere, anytime, anywhere around the world and click on, oh, what's this guitar? And then there I am just talking, playing, doing whatever. Oh, well, Greg, I would get on there and watch the videos just to hear you play. I wasn't interested in buying guitars. I just wanted to hear you, and because you were hilarious, and and that was a place that I could I could see you play. So anytime uh, well, you would do you would do videos, I go go and watch them. So that's uh you know, that's, it's that's that's really great. And and being able to to that's the other thing about you being such a good improviser, is that you you um and and being so good at so many different styles of playing, um, you know it makes it interesting and you know, you can play a Les Paul and you'll play something completely different than you'd play on a telly or, or whatever it is. And, and uh, that, that's, you know, that, that is, uh, you know, kudos on that. That was, Oh, well, thank you. It's, no. it's been a lot of fun, you know, and, and people will ask, does it ever get boring to go out there? I'm like, 
I don't think you, you you understand. I get to go out and for four days straight, I wake up in the morning, I get a tasty breakfast, I look at some mountains, and then I go into a room and I get to play these unbelievable guitars, pretty much play whatever I want. And then at the end of the day, I'll say, hey, can I take that one back to the hotel room? And then I'll play guitar all night. <laughs> like, I don't really have a problem with it. So I've been kind of been kind of missing going out there. They've been sending me guitars. So we've been doing stuff where I'll do a couple live streams a week and give them some extra content. But obviously I was used to doing 20 to 25 guitars a day. Wow. And now that, you know, they're sending me four a week. So we're trying to figure out an equitable Greg, way. Would you me. practice ever, or you just would play all the time? Uh, well, I would, I would practice different things. Um, you know, there was never like a set regimen of um, I'm going to, you know, go over these scales and do all the different intervals. Sometimes I would, but for the most part, I would be like, I'd get a little hair up my bungholio about something like, hey, you know what? I A couple of those gospel guys, I need to listen to this guy and that guy. And then I would just turn on the video in the hotel room and, you know, there would just be a couple things that they would do. But, oh, what's that? And I would take the court and then inevitably... I would I would take it and I'd kind of write my own tune around it. That's kind of sure. my modus operandi. So, and then in doing so, I come up with a, a different, you know, more fun content for me to play, possibly play with the band, and then certainly to do as a, on the videos. So that's kind of been my thing. Is uh, and then I would get into a, you know, an old Fleetwood Mac jag, you know, and then I'd be like playing along with you know those those you know the Peter Green and Danny Kerwin stuff, and then like. And then Steve one day from Wildwood's like, you know, Danny played some cool records after Peter left. And I'm like, I mean, there was life after Peter. <laughs> and so then I started listening to those records and I became, and then, you know, just the way that he did the vibrato and always the songs were kind of reverb drenched, haunting, weird chord changes. And I'm like, yeah. And then I just kind of go on these different, these different jags where it's like, you know, oh, now I'm, gonna, now I'm into this guy. And, 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 and again, it always kind of my modus operandi is, They'll play something weird and be like, well, that's cool. And then I'll learn that. And then immediately I'll try to integrate it into something of my own. And um, and that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Although I, I have been using the metronome a lot more lately just to just for the fun of it. When I'm playing, I'm always tapping my foot and, um, and trying to keep in time in that way. So anytime I'm doing a video, I am adhering to time of my own creation. But it's been interesting playing with the, the metronome. And I'll just kind of keep it on and jam along with it and, you know, and just kind of Say, oh, I have a tendency to speed up this part. I have a tendency. So it's just kind of cool to calibrate every now and again of realizing my my habits and then trying to, you know, consciously maybe trying to bring back things here or there and saying, you know, when I do this stuff, it's a little this. And if I use the metronome, I can, can reanalyze it a little differently and make it a little bit more palatable. My goal basically, Rick, is to play shit that doesn't make me want to vomit because I, I, don't, I don't know. It's <laughs> a good thing. <laughs> Greg, when 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 your son Dylan is, does he? If you're playing, will he just come over and sit down at the drums, or what? Or do you got you guys plan times to get together and do stuff? Or I know you guys do a lot of stuff together. It depends. I mean, we do two live streams a week yep. uh, that he's on. Yep. And um, and then we do a like Saturday we're doing one with the band where Toby comes down, the organ player, yep. and we'll do the trio thing. So. But other than that, I mean, it it, it kind of depends. I mean, there was a period there where he was doing a bunch of stuff on his own. Um, but it, it's the strangest thing with him because he he doesn't really practice all that much. But, but then when he sits down, he's always coming up with cool cool stuff, and he you know coming up with cool grooves. And and the thing with him and I is just so weird. The, the telepathy wise, I mean, I'm listening to some mixes that we're doing, and 
we have a tendency to do the same, the same thing at the same time a lot, you know, <laughs> whether it's from a riff point of view or a part in a solo where I'll go da, 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 at the same time, he's going, it's just, it's bizarro. So, uh, but it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it, it, it is one of those funny things where I said, if you want a really good drummer, you got to make one. <laughs> but he, you know, he went, he came by it all on his own. I mean, he, you know, he'd play with pots and pans when he was a kid. He was never really interested in playing guitar. Always wanted to play drums. Interesting. Um, and he gravitated to stuff. I mean, yeah, of course, he listened to the stuff that that I was was into. But he he liked certain things. Mm-hmm. And he really, he loved Keith Moon. He loved John Bonham. He loved Ginger Baker. And then he loved Steve Gadd, Bernard Purdy. And, uh, and would listen to that stuff as well. And he always played jazz throughout high school, um, kind of begrudgingly, but he did it and he did a good job. Um, and then he got some lessons. Breckline kind of took him under his wing and shot him, uh, taught him some cool stuff. And another drummer of mine, Del Bennett showed him some stuff, but I, I guess I knew the real moment where he was ready to rock was that I, I tell the story where we're playing a, a gig locally. Uh, you know, once a year we do kind of the, the, my little suburb here as a street fair and Tosa Fest it's called. And we were playing <laughs> and, uh, it was my trio at the time. And, um, Dylan comes up and Dylan had been taking lessons from my drummer. And I said, Hey, Dell, do you mind if Dylan sits in on a song and all of his friends are here? It's the neighborhood. He's like, nah, no problem. So Dylan sits behind the drums and I said, well, what do you want to play? And he says, uh, I want to play, um, uh, that band of gypsy song, a uh, message to love. I go, really? He's like, yeah. <laughs> And, and I counted off the song, and it's actually on the internet. Someone had filmed it, and they put it up, uh, and he nailed it. I mean, he nailed all the parts. His fills were cool. Even the like the little wink and nod parts where you're not quite sure where it's going to come in, nailed it. And I thought, oh, it's only a matter of time. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really cool. Really, uh, But really none of my cool. other kids, I mean, I mean, they all show – potential for playing like my daughter Ila showed her a couple things on guitar and she picks it up like this and I'm like well you need to practice and then she's like oh yeah let's 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 make lesson you know Tuesdays at 10 30 and then one thing leads to another and she's not playing my older daughter plays bass and then she doesn't play bass but they're all in the theater so they sing and they act and all that other kind of stuff so uh but yeah Dylan was the only one and my son youngest son plays saxophone and he enjoys doing that but he doesn't have the bug I mean he does practice but he doesn't have the thing like I'm going to do this all the time whereas uh Dylan wanted to be a rock pig from the from the get <laughs> well we both you and I both have sons named Dylan so that's uh that's a beautiful uh, thing that's a beautiful thing my my son I he he started playing guitar a couple months ago or so he's he's a lefty and uh and he said, you know, I, at first I was like, Dylan, you, you realize that the guitar doesn't play itself, right? Like you, right. you actually have to, you actually have to practice. Right. And he's like, he says, just show me where the notes are. And, and I, <laughs> I think I can figure it out. I was like, what? Let me show you where the notes are. Like, you, you show me the where the are. notes are. Show me where the notes are. Then, then he, I said, Dylan, do you practice? No, I don't know what, I don't know how to play the chords or like, what are you talking about? Go to YouTube. Right. That's right. Exactly. Well, it'd be funny because my wife would always say to me, she's like, you know, you need to show those kids. And I'm like, honey, you don't understand. <laughs> I, I can't make them do that. It has to be one of the things where they should be bugging me because that's the way I was. That's the only way right. it works. That's it. You start playing guitar. It's painful. It's it's a painful experience and it's humiliating. That's so, right. <laughs> so unless you're really into it, you know, it's not going to be one of those things where it's, you know, I'm going to, hey, kids. 
uh, it's time for pain and humiliation. What do you think? You know, they, <laughs> they got to want to. I'm trying to get my girls. I have about 10 drum sets that I own, Greg, that are set up. I have one a drum set set up in the in the other side of the, of the studio and always set up, always mic'd up and everything. You figured the kids would at least come down and want to goof around in that, but nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Isn't that crazy? How old are your kids now? Uh, Dylan's 13. My daughter, Lennon, is uh, 11. And my youngest, Layla, is 7. Oh, I like all those names. Glorious yeah. names. Well, my youngest now is 17. Wow. So they're older. So Dylan is uh, is 25. Uh, Grace is 23. And Isla just turned 20. And Johnny just turned 17. So. Wow. Yeah. And they're all home now because. Wow. Of, because of COVID-19. <laughs> so I got a whole gag, which is actually kind of fun. It's, it's fun, fun, right? And uh, always interesting sitting around and shooting the breeze. And uh, so it's been a lot of fun. It's been a weird year, obviously, but it's also yeah. a weird thing when you consider it's like of all the things that we could have been doing, uh, for some reason, you know, we've locked into this thing where it doesn't matter whether we travel or not and is able able to keep making a living. That doesn't escape me every day. I'm like, how did I get this lucky to have this this way of making a living where if I have to not travel for a year or so, it's going to be all right. You know what I mean? It's just, kind you of used to do a lot of touring though, Greg, it was, you know, I, I would, uh, uh, it was interesting to see, you know, you, you would go and, and, uh, you would tour around and, and I just wonder if it's, you know, you just kind of get used to the, the way it is now. Right. You just, it is. I mean, I mean, we're supposed to be in Europe right now that that was scheduled. Um, you know, and with with touring and with the Wildwood thing and everything else I did, I've probably gone about 150 days out of the year. So, and that's been that way for damn near 20 years ish. That, that's half the year, exactly. So, yeah. it's it's um, uh, well, one thing good is I know that my wife doesn't want to kill me having me around all the time. So, <laughs> right, that's a plus. Um. You know what it's it's interesting about it is is that um, I do miss going out and playing. There's no doubt because there's no substitute for that. Even though when we jam in this room, it's a lot of fun. Um, but going out and playing and certainly seeing the world and, and, and getting to be in front of people and talking with people that's a whole other thing. But it has given me pause to reflect on you know kind of going over my back catalog and some things that I've maybe let, you know, cause you're always looking for the next thing. Oh, I got to get this record out and I got to go here and this tour. And, and now you're like, well, nothing's really happening. Oh yeah. What, what did it, you know, I, I started finding some old charts from my old songs. I'm like, man, that would sound really good with the trio. So it's given me more of a chance to refine stuff, I guess. Uh, so I'm in kind of a, a refining mode, but I'm ready to go out and tour again. Don't get me wrong. But um Again, if, if it's all about just playing for me, so I love playing with the band. I love touring. I also love sitting around the house and playing and eating non-restaurant food. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, anyways, crazy. Well, listen, I think we've wrapped a good long time here, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for spending. I know you're a busy man, and. Uh, kudos to you and all your success. You do such a great job. You're, what you're doing is really a service to humanity, let me tell you. And <laughs> uh, really cool stuff. Very knowledgeable guy, great musician. And uh, I'm glad we got a chance to talk. I've been I've been waiting to pick your brain about a bunch of stuff. So cool. really fascinating. Same here, Greg. 
thank you very much. And I hope to see you on down the line in person. Hopefully yes. we'll get down there to Atlanta with the band. I'm sure you know once there's any semblance of a NAM or wherever musicians gather after after this is all done, hopefully we can hang out. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, my friend. Will you take care of yourself? Stay safe, and we'll see you on down the line. Thanks, Greg. I have a good one. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon.